Thank you for tuning in. Professional development is critical to our success individually and organizationally, but how do we get better, develop others, and make sure the right people are promoted? As a leader, I learned this was often as much art as science, but I didn't realize just how much science was actually available to help me perfect the art. In this episode, we focus on a specific tool called the Harrison Assessment that can and is being used for professional development, hiring, onboarding, and succession planning. Our guest today is Reed Tolley, president of Talent Matters and certified master coach who's worked around the world for both large and small organizations in the fields of organizational development and change. Thanks to Reed, I have been through the Harrison Assessment and wish I had years ago as a day-to-day practitioner. Like so many of our podcasts, we cover a lot of ground in this episode. We talk about how the Harrison Assessment differs from other assessments such as Myers-Briggs, DISC, strength finders, and the predictive index, and how all have value, but that we always need to find the right tool at the right time to achieve the best results. And because I always let you know where things stand, since going through the assessment with Reed last year, we have begun to do some client work together. And I continue to be very impressed with the assessment and its uncanny ability to bring to light behaviors that are so often invisible to us, but that are immediately validated once identified. And what I also like about the assessment is that all of the behaviors identified are tied to specific job title success factors and that any that limit our success are correctable. Another element I think is important about the assessment is that it's objective and can be an effective platform for employees, supervisors, and prospects to gain greater understanding, build better relationships, and design win-win growth and development outcomes. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Reed Tolley, president of Talent Matters, and we'll be talking about behavioral work assessments, particularly the Harrison assessment. Welcome to the podcast, Reed. Thanks, Peter. Well, um, it's great to have you here. Um, Really appreciate it. How, before we begin, can you share a little bit about yourself, your career to date, um, how you became a master coach and certified in the Harrison assessment? Yeah. Well, sure. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm a career human resources executive. I've, I've actually lived and worked all over the world uh, doing human resources work. Uh, a lot of my work has been in um, uh, organizational development, organizational change, and training and education, and, and as well as a, a number of key HR generalist roles. I've coached executives my whole career. I formalized it. Um, about four years ago through the Behavioral Coaching Institute. It's one of the major accreditation bodies for uh, professional coaches in the world. It was kind of a unique experience. I was uh, living and working in Shanghai, China at the time, and I went through my certification there, and it was a very international group of expatriates 
as well as uh, native Chinese executives. And so it's kind of a neat experience and, uh, and a, a, a lot of work, but I'm proud I did it. Right, and, and, but you, and you've worked for some major organizations that you know, very well-known organizations, and now you're working with you know, um, smaller firms also in, in the AE space and beyond. Yes, that's correct. In fact, uh, 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 the majority of my professional life before I formed uh, Talent Marriage was, was actually with a global manufacturer, uh, Goodyear, the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, a, a great iconic American brand. Yeah, and it was through that that you got to work around the world, like building different, you know, staffing, uh, or it was it, have you been in recruiting and retention or HR or a combination of both as you've traveled around the world to sort of help build that organization? Yeah, I, I throughout my career, I've kind of bounced between what we call HR generalist or HR business partner roles and more uh, specialized roles in training and education and organizational development. Uh, I've been involved in three uh, major factory startups, uh, one in, in uh, Napanee, Ontario, um, and one in Mexico, and, and one in, in Dali in China. And um, you know, the startups are, are um, just really challenging, um, neat assignments. For right. And how did you get involved with working with architecture and engineering firms? Uh, that's a great question, and I'm really enjoying my involvement in that in that industry. Um, my uh, when I left uh, when I left Goodyear and formed Talent Matters, um, I, we create talent selection and development solutions uh, for organizations, uh, often on the Harrison assessment platform. Um, but when I first started Talent, when I first uh, started Talent Matters, uh, I uh, I'd already associated with Harrison Assessments International because I used them at Goodyear. And um, uh, I started getting referrals from, uh, from PSMJ uh, to me for Harrison Assessments. And um, so I, uh, it, it, I discovered uh, um, uh, there was a, a tremendous need and market as well as uh, a&E firms, I was, were very appreciative of my help and advice. And it's just grown from, from five years ago to the point where, you know, more and more of our clients are in the AE and C space. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to dive into the Harrison assessment in particular. Um, and, I, you know, in general, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of doing whatever it takes to increase, you know, self-awareness, you know, with the leaders I work with and the teams I work with, knowing that it's such an essential component to emotional intelligence, which is critical to overall organization and leadership success, um, you know, especially as, you know, for the leaders. Um, but how, you know, there's a lot of discussion about different programs out there. I mean, in general, so there's this Harrison assessment, but over the years, we've always heard about Myers-Briggs and DISCs and strength finders. In general, how is the Harrison assessment different than those? Uh, well, first, uh, Peter, I, I think thing I, I would say is, uh, first of all, those, you know, for me, uh, it's about using the right tool at the right time. And, uh, you know, Myers-Briggs and DISC and Strength Finders are wonderful uh, tools used at the right time with the right, in the right situation. Uh, you know, so having said that, um, you know, those, those assessments are what are called personality assessments. And they, 
they all type your personality. They put you in certain categories or, or you know, boxes. And um, so they're, they, they, they categorize or type your personality or personality style. The, the Harrison does something very different. It's a, first of all, it's a behavioral assessment. It, it measures 175 behavioral traits or tendencies or preferences. And then unlike a personality, and, and unlike a personality assessment, the Harrison assessment uh, tends to compare and contrast you uh, to a specific job benchmark. And, uh, you know, in order to pinpoint uh, very specific, changeable, developable behaviors to help somebody improve their performance. Um, so, so, so the, you know, because the Harrison's a behavioral assessment, we believe behavior or the things that the Harrison measures can and can be developed and changed. Whereas a personality assessment says, this is it, this is you. Uh, and the, the, this is the this personality styles or types are pretty much set. And, and the Harrison assessment focuses on things that people can develop or do something about. Right. And knowing our personality is absolutely essential. But I think you're right. It's a tool for different. I mean, even my one of my daughters got me to do the Enneagram test not too long ago. And I, you know, I get the results and I'm like, wow, that pretty much nailed me that it but, but it doesn't necessarily predict how I will perform on the job, which yep. is the distinction. You know, it's great for information, self-awareness, but then how do I do my job today and how do I do the job I want to do tomorrow, which then gets into the, the other sort of more as common or, you know, program out there, the predictive index, how, how is the Harrison assessment different than the predictive index? Um, the predictive index is, um, is, uh, is popular and growing. Uh, the predictive in index claims also to be a behavioral assessment. The big difference as I understand it is that uh, the predictive index measures uh, 28, it's either 24 or 28 personality or, or, or traits, whereas the Harrison measures 175. So if you're trying to assess a candidate's job fit, um, you know, would you rather uh, have a hundred at your, at your disposal, 175 trait tendencies or measures about the candidate or 28? Um, and the other thing is that the, the Harrison assessment, the reports are job title specific. I believe the personality index is a, you know, you get a report back uh, as far as job fit or suitability for a job family or a job category. And so the, so the Harrison is much more laser focused on a specific uh, job title and it measures many more things when you're trying, and that would really helps predict, you know, job success. And and that, that word predict is something I want to really hit on. And, you know, the, at the end of the day, when you're using an assessment for selection, uh, whether it's you know outside hire or for succession planning, you know, or, or a, you know a key role in your organization, the, the 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 real question is, does the assessment tool you're using, is it actually predictive? You know, is it really, and, and when you look back over history of using the, the instrument, is it really predictive of, of job success? So, and, and how, how long has the Harrison assessment been around? And, 
and who's using it? Uh, I mean, it is it just large? I mean, obviously there's a lot of companies using it, but has it been around a long time? Because you, you said you, you originally started using it when you were a good year. Yes, I, I actually used it in our factory startup in, in, uh, in Dalia in China, but, um, and that's how I first discovered it. Um, the Harris Assessment's been in business uh, since 1985. It's a, it's a global, we're a global organization. The, the assessment can be taken in over 40 languages currently. Um, there, we have clients, uh, we, we have large multi, you know, national clients as well as, you know, as a, you know, we, as well as organizations that are 50 associates. Uh, so we, you know, we, we, uh, we have, uh, um, we, we, we have, uh, organizations in, in almost every, in, in every industry as well as government that are, are using the Harrison for either selection or development or succession planning or all. And, and is that how you see it working in the AEC industry? So if you look at your, you know, some of the clients that you're working with, how, how are AEC firms using the predictive assessment? I mean, excuse me, the, uh, the Harrison assessment. Thank you for that correction. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, so, um, you know, usually when clients come to us, they have a very specific need or they're looking for a solution to a you know and a, dilemma, a talent related dilemma that they have and uh you know oftentimes uh they're they have a group of people that they're trying to develop and uh we'll you know we'll uh, propose a solution that involves the harrison as well as you know other um activities related to their report oftentimes we'll do developmental assessments and then development debriefs and oftentimes too will then also do uh, suggest you know, or a, a team uh, development uh, intervention in, as it related to the project. Um, uh, so usually what happens is, is they, there's, a, there's an, an initial need and we, uh, that the Harrison is a, a good fit for and we, we help them with that, satisfy or meet that, whatever their immediate need is. But inevitably what happens is they, they recognize the capability and the versatility of the system. And so if they start using it for development, eventually they'll end up using it for hiring. Uh, or if they start using it for hiring, they'll eventually start using it for onboarding and developing. Um, and I would say the universal thing I'm involved with personally is using the Harrison for succession planning. There's a tremendous um, need uh, in the AE space for, uh, you know, there, uh, there's many, many organizations I'm working with are, you know, the, the, the senior partners or the founders are, you know, in their 60s and they're really contemplating, you know, transitions and succession. And they, the Harrison assessment has um, proven invaluable in helping uh, validated who they think their successors will be or who the potential of, uh, you know, um, parts, uh, who, who potential future partners will be. Is that because when you go through the, and I'll, we'll go through the, we'll break down the details of the assessment. Is, is that because the, when you go through the assessment, not only are you, um, you have sort of performance prediction based on your current role, but then you can also, how you respond to the assessment, sort of predict how you'll 
perform in a future role. And then you'll be able to see the opportunities or, or the gaps to be able to sort of close those as you ascend into that new position. Yeah, the, once you have somebody's assessment responses, uh, you, you know, it can be uh, their, their, their assessment results can be compared to their a benchmark for their present role, but you can also use their, their assessment data to, to accurately predict uh, their job fit and success in, in future roles. Um, so you, know, you might have somebody who's a senior project manager and you, you wanna, we might assess them for developmental purposes in their, their present role, but then for succession, we can also take their data and assess them for job fit for an upper management or a you know, senior partner role with ownership stake. And uh, you know we can pinpoint their you know quite accurately their job fit for that future role as well as you know what their gaps are what they would need to if they're if they were a primary candidate what would they need to develop in order to be ready eventually to for you know senior partnership right because the person a, a successful project manager and a successful principal. I mean, they still, they then have the same personality, but behaviors are very different. So obviously working on the behavior change is necessary for, I'm not going to change who I am as a person, but I am going to change my behaviors to be successful in a management versus a, an upper management or leadership role. And so just kind of, so the Harrison assessment in AEC is being used for performance management, hiring, onboarding, and succession planning. And um, so, and we, when we first met, I had heard about the Harrison assessment loosely, like during my years as a practitioner. Um, and so it was always known. And then we had met and spoken um, earlier last year and you had said, well, I'll, why don't you go through the assessment? And we went through it and I was very impressed with how it just sort of nailed my behaviors, things that I wish I knew 10 years ago, I wish I knew 15 years ago of how I reacted in certain situations. And, and it came with this very detailed report, which not only gave me words that I could read and say, oh yeah, it also had a lot of visuals and graphics that really brought my behaviors to light, which maybe other people recognized all along, but I couldn't recognize. Can you share a little bit about, you know, so what does it take to have the assessment? Um, and then after, what does that report look like? So for someone who takes it, what's the information they get? Um, yeah, well, uh, so the, you know, the, when you take the assessment, first of all, it's not very, I think you will agree, it's not very painful. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a 20 minute, uh, it takes about, for most people, it takes uh, 20 to 30 minutes. And, and that, that's important if, you know, for employers that, that it, um, you know, the, the, it doesn't take too long and it's not too painful because you don't want to uh, lo risk losing candidates, you know, to abandonment because they're frustrated with the assessment. Um, so when people take the assessment, it's, it's really a work preferences questionnaire. Uh, it's sent to you uh, by email. It's a link to a online assessment. It takes about 20 minutes to 25 minutes. And it's really, like I said, it's really a work uh, preferences questionnaire. Um, and then once you've completed the assessment, um, you know, it depends on what the assessment is. The reason what you get back is, is depends on the reason you're taking the assessment. Um, you know, so, you know, if, if you're a candidate, uh, you might get uh, most of my clients send all candidates a, a neat little report called your greatest strengths. 
And the, you know, if you're a candidate, the employer is getting reports uh, like uh, job success analysis, which is assessing how close you are to the benchmark, uh, the profile for that, your specific job. Um, and they are, we, a, lot, a lot of, you know, for an, from an employer standpoint, there's another report that's, that is often used as a behavioral interview guide. It's a, based on your assessment, uh, if you're a candidate. Um, and so it's a customized interview guide to help employers probe certain th aspects of, of you. Um, and then there's a report about how to attract. You know, it's a very competitive environment for, for degreed professional engineers and architects. And, um, you know, so there's a, a neat report that um, most of my employers use called How to Attract, which gives you insights as an employer on how to make your pitch to this candidate if you discern that that, that, that person's a good fit. Uh, from a development standpoint, if you're taking the assessment for development, um, there's, a, there's a whole smorgasbord of development report tools depending on, you know, what you're trying to do with, with an associate. Um, some, but all of the development reports serve uh, to uh, make the person aware of uh, behavioral strengths as well as behavioral tendencies that if, if strengthened or developed would uh, strengthen their or improve their impact at work. Um, you know, Peter, you and I both uh, in our lifetime of accumulated behaviors, right? And they, you know, they, they become so, um, uh, what's the word? They become so uh, ingrained in us or automated, uh, they become invisible to us. And the, the Harrison Assessment Report, development reports, really do a nice job of making the invisible visible again for people. You know, oh, this is what I do. I never thought about it. And it, but they, the reports also provide a framework to help the person recognize the impacts of their current tendencies. Uh, both, both positive impacts as well as unintended impacts. And it, so it, it, the, uh, the report, the Harrison Development Reports uniquely, I, I think really it's, um, I've never seen a, a tool that is more of a catalyst for people uh, to become more self-aware and kind of become less automated in their behavior and become more intentional in choosing not what I'm comfortable with or not what I'm good with, but good at, but what's needed in the moment. Right. And that was certainly the case with me. And, and some of those graphics, I still visualize the, oh, that's how I would perform in this way under stress. And so I just, and now I have that visual in my mind, which, you know, helps me with my behaviors. And I, so to me, it's, you know, even in a slightly different role than I had before. I, I mean, I think bringing those behaviors into graphical form is, is very, is very good. And I think one of the, the aspects is it's my behavior, so I can change it. It's not my personality, which I can't change. It's everything that I learned through the assessment was I could change that tomorrow if I wanted to today. Yeah, it, it takes a, 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 an awareness and it takes a decision, you know, that you're, that you want, you're, that you're willing to, you know, go through the, go through the process of learning new habits or developing new responses and, 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 and living with a little awkwardness as you, as you change, you know, and, uh, but, but yeah, the Harrison very much focuses on things that you and I can do something about.
So if I'm a, I'm a leader and I go through the Harrison assessment and I'm trying to sort of modify my own behavior to be more effective, or if I lead a team and my team went through the Harrison assessment and I want to sort of leverage that information to help, you know, bring my team to where they want to be. They want to behave better for the role and be able to perform. The, the Harrison assessment, I, I think it was um, the enjoyment performance theory. Um, it sort of talks about that and, and sort of understands that as a, you know, we're, we're going to do the things we enjoy. I mean, can you, can you unpackage that a little bit and, and how does, you know, what performance or enjoyment performance theory is and, and how Harrison uses that? Well, sure. Um, you know, there, there's actually kind of two constructs that uh, behind the Harrison assessment. And you, you mentioned the first one, it's called enjoyment performance theory, or I, or I kind of talk about the, the enjoyment performance connection. And you know, it, it really rings true. It's kind of, in some ways, some levels copyrighted, you know, common sense, but, but uh, you know, Harrison, it, one, Harrison has proven this over and over again, that things that we enjoy, we repeat. And, and it's those things that we become very accomplished at, and they get reinforced. You know, the, 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 the things that we enjoy and repeat and get good at are the things our colleagues appreciate about us we get recognized that those things get reinforced, which kind of reinforces our, our enjoyment. So we all, we kind of, you know, if you can visualize the spinning wheel, you know, we, we get this virtuous cycle of things that we enjoy. We keep gravitating towards, we get better and better at them. We get, a, it, they, we get recognized for them. And it, you know, it's just, this is a spinning wheel that goes, goes on and on and on. And, you know, so Harris has proven over and over again, this, you know, this, you know, things that we enjoy, you know, those are the things that we've become very, you know, accomplished at. And, and likewise, we all have the, uh, the kind of reverse going on, you know, things that we don't enjoy, we tend to avoid or put off or do only when we absolutely have to. And it's those things that we remain less developed at. I always use the analogy of writing, you know, with my opposite hand, I, you know, I can, I can sign my name, le name left handed, I'm a righty. But uh, when I sign left-handed, uh, it's really awkward. It's really slow, and it's uh, my signature left-handed is really ugly. <laughs> and and uh, you know, it's it's so it's like that. You know, things that we don't enjoy and 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 put off, or only do when we absolutely have to or forced to. Those are things that are like writing left-handed, you know. And and it's and it's those things that we get occasionally cause us difficulty at work, which kind of reinforces that I just don't like doing X. And so Harrison you know, does a really good job of, of pointing out things that you enjoy and tend to do and are really good at, as well as things that you, t the, the, the things that you don't enjoy and tend to avoid or put off. And, you know, what's, if there, they happen to be things that are important to your role or your career path, um, you know, there are things that you're going to have to learn to love <laughs> or, and, and develop. Right. And if, and if you don't, well, that's good news for, for good news for everyone. You can make a career shift, but if it's, you know, I, I just, I'm not really good at this. I don't like to do it or I don't like to do it because I'm not really good at it. You can work through that behavioral change and learn that. Um, and because it's essential to the job and it's something that you want, but you can recognize that now. And so the 75, 175 traits, I mean, so they're, they're categorized as essential, desirable, and ones to avoid. And so you kind of, when I went through the, the test, it's it sort of for my role, these are your essential traits and it ranks them like how, you know, do I have a lot of really good essential traits or not? And then the ones that are, you know, more desirable and then the ones to avoid, um, 
Can you share a little bit about the traits? But then I think what was very interesting to me is that um, the Harrison assessment sort of lumped those traits together. I mean, it was informative to me, like here are all my traits, like essentially here's my essential traits to do my job well. Here's my, you know, um, the desirable ones and the ones to avoid. And, and I can see how I rank. But then it sort of puts them together in a, in a way that it's called like the paradoxical behaviors. Can you just share a little bit about the traits and then how the Harrison assessment puts them together in a way that, you know, sort of brings this to behavioral light? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I think there's a couple of questions that in there. Um, so, you know, when you take the assessment, you know, how, how Harrison achieves its job specific report is there's a, for, for every job title, there's a list of essential traits, desirable traits and traits to avoid. And, you know, and so, you know, the, the Harrison, when one takes the Harrison, there's, a, there's 175 factors that are measured for any specific job, say it takes civil engineer or, you know, mechanical engineer or project manager, there's typically between 30 and 50 traits that have a statistically positive correlation with job success. And there's three, you know, so, uh, you know, the, there might be 50 traits that are categorized as either essential, desirable, or traits to avoid. And, um, you know, so, you know, for a civil engineer, there might be 15 essential traits, and they are, uh, they're key drivers of success based on research. And, um, you know, and then, uh, the, um, you know, the, also, you know, when, how, when, uh, so, you know, the other, I guess the other point I want to make about essential traits is you know, when Harrison studies incumbents to, to get these job benchmarks and essential traits are what was unique or different or distinct about highly rated incumbents, right? So they're, you know, so, you know, the essential traits are what was, you know, are the, the key drivers of success uh, based on studying high, highly rated incumbents. Uh, desirable traits uh, work a little bit differently. The desirable traits are, you, you might think of them as the best supporting actors or actresses in a, you know, in a, in a theater production. They're, they're, they're not drivers of success like essential traits, but the absence of a desirable trait at a certain optimal trait strength can hinder performance. So it's important for essential traits to be strong. It's important for desirable traits to not to be um, too weak. And then traits to avoid, uh, you know, is the other category for a, any job is there's a, there'll be a list of traits to avoid that are, are identified when one takes the assessment. Uh, but traits to avoid, think of those as the derailers or, or habits or tendencies we have that occasionally cause us difficulty. Um, and it's kind of interesting how Harrison identifies traits to avoid. It's the result of imbalances between paradoxical traits. And so, Peter, I'd like to, you know, uh, use kind of that as a segue into paradox technology. Uh, and you, you, you know, uh, Peter, you obviously got a lot out of your paradox graph report, as as most people do. Um, and so, you know, the so the Harrison assessment, uh, when Dan Harrison uh, developed it and did his initial research and validation, he identified twelve pairs of paradoxical traits that seem to be the opposite of each other, but in reality complement each other. And um, so the paradox technology for an employer uh, serves to identify uh, potential unproductive behaviors or tendencies 
in candidates from a, if you're using Paradox technology and the Paradox graph report for development, uh, it serves in the report recipient, if they're receiving their Paradox graph for developmental purposes, it serves to, um, to make them aware of, of balances they have, uh, which really are, tend to be really true and deep strengths, as well as imbalances that may be causing them difficulty at work or imbalances that need to be developed over time to get them ready for what comes next in their, in their career. An example, a really kind of easy example of to understand this whole notion of paradoxical traits. Uh, there's 12 paradox, paradoxical traits, errors, and one is called communications. And, and it turns out that people who are really effective interpersonal communicators have two seemingly opposite or, but in reality, complementary trait tendencies. They, they can be very frank. You know, they can be very direct to the point, forthright when they need to be, but they also have this capacity to state things in a, in a tactful manner or, or to be very diplomatic. And people who are balanced have access to both of these behaviors. And they, so they can be very frank when they need to be, they can be very diplomatic when they need to be, or the perfect blend of these two behaviors situationally. Um, so when one is balanced in these paradoxical trait pairs, you have access to both behaviors. It increases your odds of responding or reacting in the most, um, you know, in the most productive way in, in the moment. Right. And if you were too frank, you can turn people off. And if you were too diplomatic, you just don't get things done. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, if, you, we, if we could show a paradox, the communication paradox graph, you know, being too frank is labeled, is, you know, or using frank all the time. You know, if you have an imbalance, that's the behavior you favor and use all the time. And, and frank, when you used at the right moment, is well received. But frank in moments where something else is needed is called blunt. Mm -hmm. and, and diplomatic, you know, is when it's, it's really, when it's used at the right moment, it's, it's a good thing. When it's used at the a moment when something else is needed, uh, that's where people would describe you as eva being evasive, you know, beating around the bush. And we all have imbalances, you know, and um, so, you know, but when we, I, I just have never seen a tool for most people that just, it, it gives you a framework to, to, to be, it gives you a framework to think about or to be, uh, to be aware of, of your current tendencies and the possible impacts of those current tendencies. And, and uh, the other thing that the paradox graph does quite well is predict one's behavior under stress. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I, that, that's a thing for, that changes for most people uh, pretty quickly is when people see their, what they're called flips. It's be, if there's, there's some shifts in behavior because the behavior I know and love isn't working. Um, and it's almost always when we say and do things we later regret and have to circle back and repair something. I, um, you know, but at any, at any rate, when people become, when, see, when the people see their paradox graph, they, first of all, they never argue with it. Um, and they, they mostly, when they understand the flips, they, they kind of nervously laugh and kind of admit, you know, that, and, but they're amazed too, that the, the assessment picked that up about them. But, but, one, but get, when they, when they, when the visible, when this visibility is created about their behavior, the first thing that changes for people is they start 
eliminating flips. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that, that was very telling with me. Uh, and, and so I became aware, saw this thing visually again, but these are things that people have observed in me all the time. I mean, be, just because I'm not aware of it doesn't mean that people don't see those behaviors and respond to them. So it, it's, it's really a great tool. Um, and with the, this 12, these paradoxical behaviors where you can kind of see if things are in balance and, and not. As you're working with AEC leaders, are there any common um, imbalances that, that you tend to see sort of in general, not naming any names, um, but you know, a lot of the leaders I see in the AE space have these types of imbalances? Uh, well, there's two, I guess there's two that I would, would share. Um, you know, one is there's, it seems to be in the DNA of the industry, uh, cause motivated. Um, and it's, you know, I, I've literally uh, worked with now hundreds of AEC leaders and there, there's a trait called cause motivated. And <clears throat> there seems to be a, 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 you know, because, you know, most firms are embedded in their communities, and you know, really focus on local markets. There's a, there's a, it seems to be the strong desire to make their local communities better. It seems to be in the DNA of the industry. And I think that's a good thing. That's a neat discovery um, that I've that I've made over the past five years. Um, the other, th but the not not it's not a bad thing necessarily. But there's a um, there's the other thing that I see fairly universally is a. Um, a low tolerance for risk, and and you got to understand how how Harrison defines risk, and that's the comfort with business ventures that involve uncertainty. You know, so there's no guarantee when you buy a new when you acquire a, a smaller firm or enter a market. You've never, there's no guarantees, and um, you know, so this imbalance that that I see is 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 a, a tendency for high, uh, you know, the tendency to focus on what could go wrong, the analyzes pitfalls, and, and, and very much a, you know, a very a low tendency to be comfortable with business ventures involve uncertainty. And I know where it comes from. It comes from the engineering training. You know, and engineers are trained to identify and mitigate risk in their designs and their solutions. And, but, and it serves them well as engineers. And I always tell people, I'm really glad that the bridges I'm driving over were designed by engineers who were high analyzes pitfalls, you know, and, you know, really, you know, 4X, you know, failure design parameters, et cetera. Uh, where, that in, where that training gets in the way is when an engineer suddenly is a business manager, you know, and they're suddenly responsible for profit and loss for the markets they serve. Um, you know, the, that, that engineering uh, aversion to risk, uh, when it carries over to the business conversation, that can really inhibit a firm's growth. Um, and, um, you know, so, you know, that, that's one of the things that I, that I see over and over again. And, you know, and, and I, the other thing I, you know, I've had this conversation with a number of leaders that I'm coaching is, you know, right now things at times are good. You know, it's, Times are good, but next time there's a in the inevitable downturn in the you know economic cycle, um, you know firms at the you know firm, the firms that will prosper in slower times are the ones that will.
think outside the box in terms of projects they're willing to bid on, you know, businesses they're, you know, um, you know, markets they're, they, you know, that are my, my, the markets they have the skill sets for, but they've not traditionally gone after, you know, and so a leader who's at least moderate in risking may, uh, may survive the next downturn or may guide his firm through the next downturn better than somebody who's very low on risk. Right. And I, I see that play out in some of the strategic planning that I do with firms where, you know, looking for, you know, better visioning and strategic planning really sees those opportunities and sort of speaking the difference between managing and leading um, the managing the status quo and leading into something new and then just designing ways to take those smaller steps to realize greater results. I mean, understanding that our nature is to be conservative for very good reason, that how do you design the process to be able to, in recognizing that, take those steps, um, but taking those steps to a a better place. And so that understanding that tendency and in leadership teams, is it just the top leader? Is it the top two leaders? And everyone else has a little bit, you know, more, um, they're open to risk. You know, how does that, how does that play out in the team and who's making the decision? So kind of understanding the team um, can maybe help dictate who is in charge of what aspect of implementing the strategic plan. Yeah. And uh, a great point in, in, you know, one of the neat things about the Harrisons, there are team reports. So, and, and I, I work with leadership teams all the time on what we call the team paradox graph. And that's one of the conversations we have is if we know about each other's differences, uh, we, can, we can tap into people who have a reasonable appetite for risk uh, and, and, um, and use them to help us force thinking about options and alternatives that, we, that others might not uh, be, you know, think of. And then we can also tap into people who are really strong at uh, mitigating risk, you know, they analyze as pitfalls. Um, so there, there is a way to visually, you know, recognize each other's tendencies and differences and leverage those. Right. And, and you do, you know, that, that's looking at things on a group level, which is super important. You also do work individually with people and, and coach. Is there... Um, and that coaching is something that for executives, I know, you know, top organizations are investing pretty heavily in having executive coaching and um, because, you know, change is coming <clears throat> fast and furious. And, you know, how do you stay on top of things that you need to do personally and lead your organization um, and, and stay on track with some of the important things? What, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in executive coaching and how do you how do you think leaders can find the right fit as far as the the type of coach that they want to work for if they're interested in executive coaching for them or their team? Um, Again, the the lot there, the Peter, (laughs) Uh, I, you know, the, I I think, you know, I guess generally I, uh, you know, a coach, what what a coach can do for you is um, can help you achieve your identify and help you achieve your development goals uh, I, my focus always is on behavioral change. And, um, you know, when I work with, uh, when I work with the, or the, the coaching clients I have, we, we spend a, a number of sessions reflecting on where the person's been and where they want to go. Uh, it might be the session two or three before we actually set definitive, you know, development goals, things that they want to work on in partnership with me 
my, my focus again, and like I said, is always on behavioral change. And, um, and, you know, so in a coaching session, we, uh, we, we work on those specific behaviors. Um, and the, you know, a couple other things that, uh, that I think are, you know, really important uh, to understand about, about coaching is uh, uh, coaching can, a good coach, a, a good coach at times will, you know, some sessions will be very uncomfortable and uh, might even tick you off a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, so a, a good coach uh, will, does a couple of things. Uh, one is, you know, uh, is, is help you identify uh, assumptions and beliefs you have that might be uh, limiting the behavior change you want to make. And um, so, you know, a good coach will ask some very difficult questions, not because they're trying to be a pain, but they're trying to uh, help you identify and recognize limiting behaviors that are driving some of the some limiting beliefs that are driving some of the behaviors you want to you want to change or that are causing you difficulty. The other thing about coaching is is that uh, you know the other, the other key role a coach plays is to hold you accountable. You know, and you know, I you typically when I work with uh, the coaching clients I have, we meet you know, every other week and there's assignments, things that they, they, you, you commit to work on or practice or behaviors to try in between within your interactions with people. And, you know, I, I, you know, part of my job, please know if you hire me that I'm going to hold you accountable, <laughs> you know, to your plan and what we, what we committed to at the end of each session. So, you know, a, a good coach, you know, is, Supposed to challenge assumptions and beliefs, and some of those, you know, some some of those discussions can be, you know, be a little uncomfortable. But but please know that you know most of us are really trying to help people uh, achieve their goals and unlock their potential as a as a person, um, and that they're, we're going to hold you accountable. Um, the other thing, you know, compatibility. When you're working one on one with a person, compatibility is everything. You know, and so I would, I would interview several, if you're interested in, in a coach, I would interview a few people. Um, and then, you know, uh, you know, when you think you've got the right person, you probably really won't know for two or three sessions. And uh, so, you know, but usually, um, usually, and, and sometimes if you're feeling it's not right, uh, chances are the coach is feeling it too. You know, and I, I've only had to end one coaching relationship or, re, or refer because I, you know, it became clear I wasn't the right person for this person. Um, you know, but, it, but it's, important to, it's important to interview coaches. And, uh, and then once you've got, think you've got the right person, give it a try for two or three sessions before you, you decide, you know, so... Well, great, great advice. Any, anything else as we close? Um, is there anything else that you would like to share um, to help AEC leaders and firms kind of move forward in, in the assessment space or the organizational development coaching space? Uh, well, I think, um, I think, I think you, you hit it earlier, Peter. I, you know, I, I call it learning agility, you know, the learning, you know, learning, agility as a 
competency is going to be very important. The, the world is changing so fast. And if you, you know, if, if, uh, if, if Peter Demandis, the guy who wrote, uh, talks about sin the singularity and Ray Kurzweil are, are even half right, the next 20 years are going to, the pace of change is going to be accelerating. And I believe there's, it's full of opportunity for or people and organizations that are always learning, you know, and uh, so, you know, AEC executives need to be always learning, you know, and have the, you know, have an outside, you know, have a, you know, an outside in view of things and really, and you need to hire for learning agility, you know, hire for people that are, are you know, kind of have a growth mindset, if you will. Um, I, I think the future is exciting and the future is promising for, but, but it's for individuals and organizations that have, you know, have this learning agility or, or a growth mindset. Mm. How, how can leader, how can listeners get in touch with you to learn more about you and what you're doing at Talent Matters and the Harrison assessment? Well, sure. Uh, thanks for the, the invite to share that information. Um, uh, my, I, I have a website, uh, talentmatters.solutions. Um, you can email me at read at talentmatters.solutions. And I don't mind sharing my cell. It's 330-354-6262. Uh, Great. Well, I, Reed, I really appreciate you being here today to share with us, you know, your knowledge and insights and in particular sort of unpacking the Harrison assessment. Well, you're, you're very welcome. And I, you know, I guess if I would uh, want to close with something is I, I wasn't planning on this, but I've discovered a, a, an industry that I really love. I, I love the firms that I'm working with in the AEC uh, space. It, it truly is a great industry filled with just great good, people. Good people. Absolutely. So, thanks. All right. Well, thank you again and take care. Yep. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get us established. And I truly appreciate that. It also helps get the word out so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. So thank you. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.